everyone. Welcome to the Faith Chapel podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Nate, if I haven't met you, and I am so honored to be able to join you. And for those of you I can't see, um, it's an honor to be with you as well. So three months ago, we started a journey, and I love a bunch of you guys have jumped on this journey. We, our team developed this Teach Me journal, and here's the premise of it. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells a story about people who survive the storms in life and those who don't survive the storms in life. And he, he has this illustration. He says, uh, when a storm comes, if your house is built on a rock, your, your life survives. And if it's built on something else, on the sand, it, the storm overwhelms you and you fall apart. And then as he's describing this to his disciples, <clears throat> he says this, he says, those who hear my words and put them into practice are the ones who survive the storms of life. So I've just been thinking about this and we thought, well, I think sometimes we focus too much on gaining information. And Jesus says, what you really wanna do is not just gain more information, but you actually want to implement truth. You want to obey the words of Jesus. So we developed just four of the commands of Jesus. And over each month, we've been focusing on one of these. And by the way, if you don't have one of these, you can pick, pick it up anytime. They're available at the Welcome Center and just jump into this journey. So uh, month one, we did abide. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? We thought about that. How do we implement that? Spent four weeks. Uh, month two was rejoice. How do we rejoice? Jesus said rejoice. And so like, what does that look like when it's not easy to rejoice? Then month four was deny yourself. And month five is pray. Or four is pray. Like, how do we learn to pray? Jesus said, I want you to pray. And so at the beginning of every month, I've talked about this. And then if uh, it works within your schedule, you actually explore it throughout the month. So pray. I want to talk a little bit about prayer today. So when I talk about prayer, first, I just want to thank all the people that pray for this church and for this community and for our world there, some of you are just like prayer warriors. And I would be the first to say that you're like, you're the backbone. You carry the weight of the church. Your prayers change the world. You're veterans of prayer. And there are so many things that have happened through your prayers. Some of them you know, some of them you don't. But I'm so grateful for those prayers. Then there would be some of us who the... Even when I say the word prayer, you just feel a little bit of shame, right? Like, oh, because we often feel like, oh, I don't pray enough or I don't know what to say when I pray. Maybe you're spiritually unresolved and you're thinking about like, do I pray? But how do I pray? And I, I feel inadequate when I pray and you feel like you're talking to yourself. Listen, prayer is one of those things that I have constantly over the last several decades been trying to grow in because I feel like, like I'm at stage one and there's so many opportunities for me to pray and I, 
I so often get distracted. This is literally this week. I am praying. I'm spending aside a half an hour to pray. I'm praying over you guys. I'm praying over a community. And about minute 18 in my prayer, I find myself in an episode of the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, <laughs> which I haven't watched for decades, right? Did anybody remember that? It's this weird, weird cartoon about a squirrel and a moose and communism. And like, I don't even know where it came from. And I'm supposed to be praying for you guys. And I'm like, I'm like <laughs> thinking about an episode of the Rocky Bullwinkle show. And like, I, I, like, how did I get there? How does that happen? Well, it's because I'm still learning how to pray. And if you're learning how to pray, I, I think we're in good company. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at one chapter in the Bible. It's from part of the ancient Old Testament, a book by the name of Nehemiah. And it's about a man named Nehemiah. And I just want to set the stage and then we're going to read the first chapter because in that chapter, he has this beautiful prayer that's very succinct, but I think it will provide a template for us to learn how to pray, All right? One of the things that the disciples asked Jesus was this. They said, Jesus, could you teach us how to pray? So they watched Jesus and they saw how he prayed and they thought these, these are good Jewish religious boys and they knew all the prayers. But when they watched Jesus pray, they realized he prays differently than we do. Could you teach us to pray like you do? So here's the book of Nehemiah, 586 BC. Israel has been experiencing cultural upheaval and God has been sending prophets for decades and these prophets have come and said, listen, listen, turn back to me. Because here's what they've done is they kind of begin to forsake their origins and their roots. And they see the gods that the neighboring nations worship. And they've begun to worship those gods as well. And they're, they're compromising spiritually. They're compromising ethnically. They, uh, ethically, they have all of these internal challenges. And God keeps sending the prophets and says, if you turn back to me, there's hope. I can restore you. But they ignore that. And then in 586 BC, in marches Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And they sweep into Israel and with hardly any resistance, they destroy the city of Jerusalem, knock down its walls, and then they do the unthinkable. They destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And that temple was the hub of their culture and the hub of their spirituality. And when that temple is destroyed, it felt like absolute devastation. There's no place to worship. There's no place to make amends for your sins. And then Nebuchadnezzar gathers up the people of Israel and he takes them away into different parts of his empire. Well, not too long later, about 60 years later, the Babylonians were now overcome by the Persians and their capitalist Susa. And we have a guy named Nehemiah. And we don't know how he entered into this place, but he is the cupbearer to the king. He's a Jew. He's never been to Jerusalem. He has a fairly privileged life. Here's what a cupbearer was. In the ancient world, kings and queens, royalty were always concerned about the potential of assassination. And so they would find somebody, it had to be somebody that you trusted, but it was usually somebody who was not connected to the empire in any way and they called them the cupbearer. So Nehemiah ends up in this very influential place. He's living in the palace, and this is what the cupbearer did. Before every meal, 
you would sip the wine and you would taste the food and then everybody would watch you to see if you died. And if you died, that meant the food was poisoned and it wouldn't be served to the king. If you didn't die, good for you. And then the food went off into the king and the queen, the, 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 royal, the royal house. And so Nehemiah has this job, living in comfort, living hundreds of miles away from his ancestral home. He is the cupbearer, and he has this interaction where someone who is a Jew interacts with his life, and he asks this question. What's happening back home? What's happening? You were in Jerusalem, right? Tell me about it. Place he's never been. And he receives this report. So let's read together Nehemiah chapter one. We'll read about that interaction and then Nehemiah's prayer. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, which is the month of December, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, he was ethnically also a Jew, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Let me talk about that for a moment. Every ancient city had a wall around it. It was your primary form of defense. And this wall meant that you were protected from invaders. And if your wall didn't exist, you were, like, you were just vulnerable to any invader, to anyone who wanted to do violence. And, and so it's, it's disgraceful. There's this tiny little remnant of Jewish people left. The rest have been scattered throughout the Persian empire. And the people who are living there, they're troubled and they're in great disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, here's his prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Right there, that's, that's worship. We'll explore that in just a moment. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins, notice this word, we Israelites. Okay, Nehemiah was not a part of anything that had happened nearly a century before where the people had turned to other gods and then eventually their nation is destroyed. But he owns it. He uses the we, the plural, rather than the singular. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, 
I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. By the way, right there, what Nehemiah is doing is he is referencing two ancient passages of scripture, Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, where God said, it's one of those warnings. If you wander, like there's this opportunity, the consequences will be severe, but if you turn to me, I'll gather you back together. So Nehemiah is going back to a biblical truth that he'd been exposed to early on. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So here's what happens. Nehemiah, by the way, a cupbearer, you're like a culinary expert, right? And you're like the lab rat. You're expendable, but you had to be trustworthy. So Nehemiah goes in and he eventually asks the king. He says, king, I know I'm your cupbearer. I know my job is just to taste your food. But my heart is so deeply troubled at what has happened to my ancestral home and these people who are living in this impoverishment. He, he asked the king, would you allow me to leave? And would you supply everything that's needed, the funds, the people, the personnel, for me to travel to my ancestral home and to rebuild the walls? And the king says, sure. And so this guy who's never built anything in his life that we know of goes home in the rest of the book. I'd really encourage you to read it. It's this beautiful book about cooperation, about vision. There's these powerful principles about leadership because in record time, Nehemiah gathers all these people living in exile, living in these little camps and he organizes them and they rebuild the walls simultaneously. The book of Ezra happens right after this. They rebuild the temple, the book of Esther, the book of Daniel also take place during this time period. So what do we learn about prayer that we can apply to our own lives where God might teach us how to pray? Here's the first thing. Number one, when you pray, Nehemiah teaches us to pray with open eyes and an open heart. Open eyes and an open heart. Nehemiah is completely insulated from what is happening hundreds of miles away. The state of Jerusalem, the state of the people there really has no impact on him whatsoever. Doesn't personally impact him. And here's the challenge. When it comes to prayers, we can tend to become very, very myopic. I know this is a challenge I face. Meaning my prayers get smaller and smaller and they get more and more, the emphasis is on me and my situation and my world and what I'm experiencing. But you have a man like Nehemiah who shows us something. He opens his eyes and he opens his heart and he is passionate. He's emotionally moved by things that are far away and do not directly impact him. So how do you pray with open eyes and open heart? Well, I think here's a beautiful option. When you're watching the news, when you're reading about the news, when you're perusing the internet, let God open your eye and open your heart and be impacted by what is happening, the things that are bigger than us. If my perspective and my prayers are small, here's a great question. Somebody asked me this. They asked me this a long time ago. They said, if God answered all of your prayers right now, 
what would change? If the answer is, well, my life would change or the people closest to me would change, that tells me my prayers are fairly small. But if God answered all your prayers and what we were praying about was not just the things that are important to me, but I'm praying about injustice on the other side of the globe. I'm praying about issues like human trafficking. I'm praying about racial situations, like these big, big prayers because I have open eyes and open heart. And when God answered my prayers, wouldn't it be beautiful if the world changed? Pray with open eyes and an open heart. Here's the second lesson on prayer. Begin with prayer, begin with prayer. So Nehemiah is developing this vision. When he hears about what's happened in his homeland, I, I just want you to think about the strategy that would be involved in traveling hundreds of miles across the desert, taking supplies. He's got to think about how in the world am I going to fund this? How am I going to motivate people? How am I, like I've got to draw a plan. We've got to find out how these rocks go back together. There's all this cultural change that will need to happen. Here's what happens when we typically face a big challenge, a big situation. It could be relational, it could be financial, is our first priority is to come up with a strategy and to begin to worry. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, how in the world are we gonna rebuild these walls? I've gotta create some sort of system for moving multi-tons of rocks and stacking them. I've gotta repair all the damage that's happened. Here's what Nehemiah does. My first priority is to pray. Before I plan, before I prepare, before I strategize, Nehemiah says, I'm gonna pray. Because I'm facing an impossible situation. And more important than my strategy and my preparation is that I get face to face with God and I let him adjust my expectations and I let him begin to dissolve my worry. And this priority of prayer, like this week, you and I will face situations that seem daunting and overwhelming. And we either can jump into fix it mode and creating a strategy and how to fix this relationship or this financial situation. But Nehemiah teaches us this, what if my first response was prayer? And God, I'm not coming up with my strategy or my solutions until I have first and foremost prioritized prayer. So pray, open eyes and open heart. Make sure that I am praying about things that are far bigger than I am to prioritize prayer. And then thirdly, I want us to walk through the structure or the elements of Nehemiah's prayer. Because I think wherever you're at, this gives you a template for what prayer looks like, all right? So here are the elements of Nehemiah's prayer. The first element is worship. It's worship, it's praise. So Nehemiah begins his prayer, and by the way, this would be the prayer of Daniel, the prayer of Hezekiah. This would be the Lord's prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples. This would be Paul's prayer. Is he begins not with the problem. Instead, Nehemiah begins this way. He says, oh, great God. 
God, creator of the universe. And here's why praise is the best way to start prayer. Because when I'm facing a problem, that problem seems overwhelming. Maybe it's in my family. Maybe it's something global. Maybe I'm burdened by something. I don't know how to fix it. And that problem becomes bigger and bigger. Here's what worship does. Worship says this, God is bigger than the problem that I am facing. And worship, it can be singing like we just did. But worship is anything when I am focusing on God, when I am realizing that he is able, I may not feel like it. So intuitively, the first thing that we typically do is worry. But rather than worry, take a moment to worship. Take a moment to declare that God is bigger than the crisis that you are currently facing. God is bigger than that problem at work because if, if you don't worship that, that problem, that issue just keeps growing and it just right sizes any challenge that I face. I go, okay, God, this is big. What's happening in my family seems overwhelming, but here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a moment and I'm gonna declare that you are the God who hung the stars in their place. And you are the God who spoke this world into existence. And you are the God who has never abandoned me. And as I begin to worship, what happens? My problems become smaller. My perspective changes. So pray, begin with worship. Here's the second element to, to uh, Nehemiah's prayer. It's confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. So we read it, Nehemiah said, God, would you forgive our sins, the we, I have sinned against you. My forefathers have sinned against you. Here's why confession and repentance are so important. Because human beings, since Genesis chapter three, have practiced blame. The first catastrophe, the first sin against God, what is the natural response of both human beings that exist at that moment? Blame. They've just chosen autonomy. They've, they've, they've chosen independence from God. And God comes and says, what happened? And here's what Adam says. Well, God, it's not my fault. The woman you gave me, she caused me to sin. Who's he blaming? God and the woman. It's not my fault. I want to blame somebody else. Now, what does Eve do? Well, God, it's not my fault. The serpent. You created, he's the one that deceived me. And blame has been our natural response, a failure to take responsibility. And here's what Nehemiah shows us. The opposite of blame is repentance. It's confession, it's owning it. So when we're, when we're thinking about these big challenges in the world, this is what we do, we blame. Well, it's, it's that political party. It's that person in leadership. It's the family that I was born in. We can blame people for everything. And in prayer, here's what we get to do. In this secure relationship with God, we don't have to blame other people. We can just say, God needs you to forgive me. I identify, I, I'm not immune. I, I take responsibility. Forgive me for my fears, my doubting. Forgive me for my anger. Forgive me for my responses that are the opposite of what you're doing in my life. In 1910, the London Times asked 
several essayists to write an essay and they're gonna run one every day of the week for seven days. And here was the question, it said, what is the problem with our world today? So multiple essayists wrote, and some of them were about, it's, it's about our governmental structure and the monarchy, it's about the politics, it's about cultural dynamics. And one of the essays that they, essayists that they asked was a man named G.K. Chesterton, who was a theologian and author. And all of these essays were very long. When G.K. Chesterton's was published, this was his answer to the question, what is wrong with the world today? Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. Here's what Chesterton knew. If the problem with the world is always someone else, the world will never change. But if I can be humble enough to say the problem is me, God, would you grant me forgiveness? I, I'm a part of this culture. I wasn't there, but I take responsibility for the things that my ancestors didn't do. And God, if they weren't willing to come before you and own this, I will own this. And I refuse to blame. Instead, I choose to own it. God, forgive us. So Nehemiah, elements of prayer, one is his worship. Begins with positioning himself in front of this big glorious God. Two, confession and repentance. The third element to his prayer is this. He declares truth. He declares truth. So the reality is this, his entire nation is scattered over the Persian empire. First they were scattered by the Babylonians and now they're scattered even further by the Persians. They've lost all sense of cultural identity. They feel lost. They're wondering, does God even care? Our nation has been destroyed. God didn't stand up for us. And here's what Nehemiah does. He goes, I get it, this is confusing but I am going to declare what I know is true. And in Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30, God made a promise. And the promise was this, that if we turned to him, he would gather us no matter how far we were on the horizon, that he would bring us back together. So in the midst of all of this doubt and all of this confusion, I am declaring that God said that if we turned to him, he would heal our land. Here's why this is so important. From Genesis chapter three on, there has been someone, he's called the accuser, he's called Satan, the devil, all of these words. And here's what the enemy does. The enemy of God, one of his primary tactics is this, is he brings deception, half-truth and doubt. When we're introduced to him in Genesis chapter three, what is he doing? He is twisting twisting the truth of God. He's, he's trying to get Eve to doubt that God really is good. And that same enemy is still at work. I know sometimes it's hard for us to believe this, but I guarantee you the enemy of God is constantly trying to skew your perspective and add some sort of deception that begins this process where you fail to trust God. The enemy is still at work and that is his primary tactic. So you'll find this, Jesus does this, Paul does this, Nehemiah teaches this, is in, in order to set the world right, 
I have to identify the lies that I believe, the lies that I'm inadequate, the lies that I could never be forgiven, the lies about my own security, because the enemy will always try to reinforce that. And instead I declare truth. So when I am feeling intimidated and afraid, I, I, I would so long for all of us to know this. The enemy is going to try to reinforce you're inadequate, you're not enough. Have in your heart the truth of what God really says about you. So when God's telling me you're, you're inadequate, you're not enough, here's what, here's what you do. Uh-uh, I read this book and it told me this. God did not give me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. When I'm feeling like, I can never be forgiven. I will never change. And the enemy is reinforcing that light. Uh-uh. In my prayers, I declare truth. I read what Paul said. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, they are a brand new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And Nehemiah is teaching this 2,500 years ago that in the midst of desperate situations in our prayer life, declare what you know is true, even when you don't feel like it's true. Even when my emotions don't line up with that, Nehemiah says, I know what's true and I'm gonna pray truth. And that truth is gonna combat the lies of the enemy. So the elements of his prayer, worship, confession, declaration of truth. And then here's the very last one, request for help. At the very end of his prayer, God, would you help me? According to my calculations, Nehemiah's prayer is 257 words long. Only 25 words deal with his personal request for help, less than 10%. And when, when I read that, I thought, I wonder how that compares to my own prayers. And I, I think I'm about the opposite. About 90% of my prayers are like, God, help me. Sunday's coming, I got nothing to say. Um, 90% of my prayers, about 10% are about bigger things than me. I'm just so inspired as I read this. He focuses on this big God, worships, declares truth, repents, and at the very end, God, could you help me? I'm gonna go before the most powerful man on the face of the planet, and I'm gonna ask for the impossible. Would you do something there? And God does. A couple of thoughts in conclusion. <clears throat> One, assume that you are part of the answer to any prayer that you pray. So here's what I love about Nehemiah. <clears throat> it's really easy to pray the prayer that says somebody should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild those walls. God, I'm just praying that you would raise somebody up, right? How often do we do that? God, somebody should fix this family. God, somebody should heal this marriage. God, somebody should do something about oppression. Somebody, God, you need to send somebody to go deal with famine and disease. You need to go send somebody to deal with the political world. I don't know who it is, God, but you gotta send somebody. 
Nehemiah doesn't send somebody. He says, I'm just going to assume that if I care about this, if this is on my heart, if I've prayed about this, then I am going to be some at least small part of the answer to this prayer. I heard this phrase years ago. Whenever you're facing a big situation, first you fall on your knees and then you roll up your sleeves. You just get ready to be a part of the solution. How can I be a part of this? So Nehemiah is not just praying for somebody. He says, God, I'm praying for somebody and I don't see anybody. So me as a professional food taster, I guess I'll go rebuild some walls. I don't even know how to do any of this, but I don't see anybody else volunteering and I care about it. So I'm in, I'm in. Assume that you are part of the answer to any prayer that you pray. Here's the final thing in conclusion. When you pray, um, here would be my, I just say this, try to pray is if you are speaking to someone who loves you and cares who loves you and cares because we can get caught up, right? And like, oh, I don't know how to pray. I feel so awkward when I pray. I feel like I'm talking to myself. And then you hear somebody who's really good at praying and they're like, you're like, whoa, that was a lot of words. And you use the word sovereign. I don't even know what that means, right? So years ago, I had a friend named Tim Clevenger and Tim was a businessman in our community. And he had this radical encounter with Jesus that changed his life. And um, Tim was just influential in the community. And so we were at a fundraising event. Some of you have been to something like this. There's probably 800 people in the room and dinner is going to be served. And Tim is asked to come and open the event in prayer. Well, he's never prayed out loud in front of anybody before. And this guy is very intelligent and great leader, but he is freaked out. So he, this discussion, like, what do I do? I have to pray out loud. And I told him, I said, Tim, I just want you to think about this. Pray as if you were just speaking to somebody you knew who loved you. He's like, okay, okay. So he like, but he takes it so seriously. He writes down all these prayers. So it's an evening event. He stands up in front of the mic. And he says, dear God, we're so happy to be here this morning. And it's night, right? So he opens up his prayer and then, then he freaks out because he know he just muffed up the prayer and he goes, O-S-H-I-T into the mic in his prayer. And I'm like, <coughs> and he kind of recovers and makes through the prayer and like bless this meal and this event, amen. And he comes down, he is so red faced and I'm like, nice job, buddy, fist bump. <clears throat> he was so nervous, right? Because he didn't know. He, Prayer was a performance, and I get that. Prayer is never a performance. Prayer is you talking to someone who is all-powerful and loves you. Make prayer as simple as you can. Dear God, thank you that you care, that, that just simple people like us who face all kinds of situations and challenges, that you're not overwhelmed by billions of voices calling out to you.
our prayers are heard and they matter. And we get to dialogue with someone who is all powerful and loves us. Lord, would you teach us to pray? Would we have open eyes and open hearts? Would we pray about things that are far bigger than our personal circumstances? God, would we make prayer a priority? And then Lord, in our prayers, would we worship to establish what is truly most important? Would we confess that we are a part of the problem? Would we be reminded of truth and would that evaporate the lies of the enemy? And Lord, we bring our request to you, big or small. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody, thanks for studying that with me. A couple of thoughts. One, if you are brand new and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and you want a Bible, I have a Bible for you. It is free at the Welcome Center. We'd love to get that in your hands. If you need prayer for anything, those are available up front. If you're online, same thing. As you go, be the hands and feet, mouthpiece of Jesus. Challenge yourself in prayer. God bless you. You're loved. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.